Welcome to the Stony Plain Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community that is about discovering fullness of life for everyone by practicing the way of Jesus together. This message is a part of our series, Breathe, where we are reimagining life at the sustainable and abundant pace that Jesus offers. Jesus, thank you that you are the way maker, that you are the light in the darkness. We pray that as uh, we talk uh, this morning about life in your name and about your way, that you would be uh, bringing us life in your name, Jesus. That you'd be making a way forward for us in in our culture, in this world that uh, is so so different from your ways, Jesus. And so we give you the floor this morning. We pray that you'd be speaking to us, that you would uh, be coming to us and giving us eyes to see what you're up to and ears to hear how you're moving. And so, Spirit of living God, we pray you'd fall fresh on us now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, you can be seated. Good morning. Uh, my name is Matt, if you don't know me, and I'm the Youth and Young Adults Pastor here. And uh, it's my privilege to share with you this morning. We are concluding our series, Breathe, uh, this morning. And this series has been all about stepping back, stepping back and evaluating our lives in this world and asking, is uh, this hurry and this hustle, this fast-paced technological life, uh, is this really the abundant life Jesus promised? You know, I I was at a youth pastor's gathering uh, a month ago and uh, our speaker talked about this 12-year experiment of the smartphone. And it's like, okay, so here we are 12 years later. Has this made our lives truly better, or where do we sit? And it's this question I've been asking myself over and over again. Because as we look around the world, uh, we're seeing ourselves being shaped. Shaped in a way that's moving us from a life to the full to a full life instead. A life that's become fragmented, distracted, and discontent. And so that's why we've been doing this series uh, called Breathe, is because... We just want to stop because we recognize there's power in the deep breath. You know, when you're angry and you just have that space, you get some perspective. You get some uh, ability to, to change course. And as a church, we thought there might be some value in the deep breath and taking a look at our lives and taking a look at the way that our world functions and going, maybe there could be a better way. And then we also call it breathe because Uh, The word for spirit uh, in the Old Testament, ruach, and the New Testament, pneuma, both are this word for breath. And we know that no matter how much we try to change, unless it's uh, invigorated and empowered by the life of the spirit, true and lasting change won't come. And so we want to breathe deep in the life of the spirit. And so we've discovered over and over again over the past number of weeks that uh, this isn't about something new. This isn't about five easy steps or a new app or a new website or anything like that, but instead it's about returning to those well-trodden paths that the saints have walked over the centuries, the paths of life with Christ. When we've been looking at this invitation that Jesus gives us to do life with him, because we think there's a ton of wisdom found in Eugene Peterson's interpretation of Jesus' words in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, which says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. 
I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn how to live freely and lightly. This is an invitation to apprentice or disciple with Jesus, to be with him, learning from him, how to be like him, learning his ways, learning his unforced rhythms of grace. Because Jesus' invitation is to a sustainable, abundant life with him, empowered by the Holy Spirit, where we're slowly transformed to be like him. And I recognize that just like when Jesus spoke these words about 2,000 years ago, living, in freely, uh, living freely and lightly still doesn't come easy to us. As much as we've seen so much progress in our world, we have not solved this freely and easy way, have we? If anything, we're more tired and we're more burnt out than ever. The modern life that we've embraced, as good as it is, and trust me, I don't want to go back to a pre-modern world. I might get up here and harp about technology every once in a while, but I like light bulbs. I like heating. I like a car. These are good things. But this life has caused us to become distracted, fragmented, disconnected from the land, from each other, from God, and even ourselves. And it's part of the issue is, and what we're going to be talking about today, is that our world is shaped by this force that is continuously shaping us in turn of discontentment and comparison. That these forces of discontentment and comparison cause us to become discontent, cause us to be fragmented. And it's, of course, nothing new. What I'm going to talk to you about is really kind of the issue at play even back in the garden. So this is an age-old thing for humanity, but I don't think we've got it yet. And so, at the heart of often our sin is this posture of comparison and discontentment, and I think the solution comes from embracing a life of contentment. Now, of course, I'm not saying anything new again, am I? Who here has heard a sermon or a speech or read a blog on being content before? Really? Only a few of you. <laughs> Maybe you felt, forgot about it by the time you left church or got distracted by the internet or something. Contentment is just something we hear about all the time, right? And yet, it's something that's so hard to dig deep into us. And so why is it? Well, I think it's because contentment isn't found in achieving, but it's found in receiving. And we often have the wrong posture. We, we think we need to achieve some sort of state of contentment. But really, it's about receiving from God. And so we're going to turn to Philippians uh, chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. Rob totally spoiled, like, the next part, so pretend you didn't see that up on the screen. Just joking, it's all good. Uh, so Philippians, 10, 13, or 4 to, Philippians 4, 10 to 13. So Paul's writing, and he writes, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. The word of the Lord. This idea of being well-fed or hungry is not an abstract idea for Paul. Paul's not writing from luxury. He's not on some sort of villa in Rome at this moment. Instead, he's sitting in a prison. And this isn't even one of our maximum offender prisons of today. Instead, what an ancient prison in Rome would be like would be you have a room and you're welcome. 
any sort of clothing, any sort of blankets, any sort of food, water, basic needs, good luck. You're on your own. You have to provide for yourself. Now, you're asking yourself, but aren't you in prison? How would you do this? And the answer is, hopefully you have friends. And so Paul's writing this letter to a group of friends who've been providing for his needs. To a group of friends who've sent food, have sent companionship, probably some blankets. And so he's not writing about contentedness and poverty out of theoretical ideas. Instead, he's writing out of reality. Because he knows contentedness or being satisfied is not situational. It's not based on what you have or don't have, but instead it's based on your posture. Because Paul knows it's all about the posture of the kingdom of God. About this abundant life that God is bringing through the power of Jesus and his Holy Spirit. But here's the problem. So Rob, you can throw it up now. (laughs) Here's the problem. Modern life is built on the back of comparison and discontentment. Again, modern life is built on the back of comparison and discontentment. Now, this issue, of course, of discontentment is old as humanity. And of course, it has its benefits. Discontentment is the engine of innovation. Think of many of the inventions we have over the years and how we wouldn't have them if somebody hadn't been discontent. Like if someone hadn't been discontent in taking a wagon from the East Coast to the West Coast, we would never have the train, the automobile, and finally the airplane. If someone wasn't discontent with freezing to death in minus 50 in Alberta, we'd never have heating in our homes. There's perks to discontentment. But the problem is discontentment in comparison comes into our own lives and makes us unsatisfied with ourselves and our lot in lives and leads us to patterns of sin and brokenness, and that's when it becomes a negative. And this is why God made such a big deal out of discontentment in the Ten Commandments. Remember Exodus 20, verse 17, where he says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The word for covet here is, um, is about a longing to possess, to desire, to find delight in. You're looking at your neighbor's house, their spouse, their possessions, their ox or donkey, which would be like the vehicles or combines or ride-on lawnmowers of their day. Maybe that really nice boat, I don't know. And you have to have them for yourself, and it just takes over. Coveting takes you over and makes you want it for yourself. Now, this is hard enough to do in the ancient world uh, when your neighbors are just the people around you and you're in a small community. And eventually it gets dark and you can't see anything. Now put that in the context of our global village and the reality that our neighbors are anybody in the world. And the lights may go off, but the screens just go on still. And it's not just about people in close proximity to you now. It's everywhere. It's not just what you can see, because our screens, our flyers, our newspapers, our magazines, our radios, some of us even listen to podcasts with ads perpetually through them. They're just continuously telling us we don't measure up, that we're at a lack. They're causing us to covet, causing us to find some sort of satisfaction and delight in what they have to offer. And if you don't believe me, listen to this quote from Shane Hips, a former marketer at Porsche. He says, much of what I did involved unearthing private, exploitable data from consumers' lives, what we call the leverageable insight. 
An effective ad tries to tap viewers' most intense and emotional impulses. My job was to save people from feeling impotent, unattractive, or powerless by offering them a Porsche, which promised to fix these problems. Now, he says, you can't fault me. It's not offering cheap grace. I mean, a Porsche is like 100,000 at least. But you get this? His job is to save people from feeling impotent, unattractive, and powerless by offering them an automobile. Get this car and your problems will be solved. Our advertising industry is designed to make you believe that you are helpless or incompetent, incomplete, lacking if you don't have something. And it promises satisfaction. Whether your life is incomplete without the experience it offers of being on a cruise ship, owning a vehicle, trying a new food, whatever it is, it tells you that if you buy this vehicle, you'll go from someone who doesn't like being outdoors, doesn't like bugs, doesn't like being rained on or cold, and now, because this new all-wheel drive vehicle you have, you'll be in the mountains traveling from hike to hike, to rapid chasing, to taking in the northern lights of the campfire, all because of that new all-wheel drive, completely ignoring who you are as a person. It's made to prey on our fears and our dissatisfaction. And instead of making us find life in something good and meaningful and in the ultimate meaning and goodness of Jesus himself, the way, the truth, and the life, they give us something that honestly can't deliver on their promises. Where we need wells of, or streams of living water, instead what we get is a well that's dry, that can't parch our thirst. Now, run this through the filter of the reality that we see. Uh, it's, uh, it's suggested up to 5,000 advertisements a day. Think how often they pop up on your phone, on your browser, on the side of the highway, on your TV, your shoes, someone's shirt. I mean, they're all over this place right now, even. Kim's really making me want a Coke at this moment, which is good. Right? How many advertisements did you hear on your way here to church this morning? It's not just the advertisements that we, we kind of catch. There's something even far more nefarious happening right now. Have you ever Googled something? And the next time you're on Facebook or Instagram or checking your hockey pool, you notice the banner ad is directly related to what you searched for? You know, you're thinking of a nice vacation, you Google where to go, and all of a sudden your pop-up ads are for Mexico and flights and all-inclusive hotels. Anybody had this experience before? How about when you're talking about it and your phone's just happening to be there, right? Like, let's call it what it is, it's evil. It's called targeting, ad, targeted advertising. And our phones, our social medias, our map apps, our Google are mining our, us for our information, browsing history, and even our conversations in order to suggest products for us. This advertising machine is breeding us into discontent people. So, um, Rob, why don't you throw up the next slide? I, I found this hilarious. I honestly didn't read the article because I stopped at the bottom. But it starts with, targeted ads are one of the world's most destructive trends. Here's why, which is a really great clickbait article, right? I mean, it made me want to click on it. But then I got to the bottom and it said, your privacy. We use cookies to improve your experience. And when I talk about cookies, like these are the digital version of chocolate chip masquerade, or I mean, raisin masquerading as chocolate chip cookies. It says, we use cookies to improve your experience on our site and show you personalized advertising. So this article is all about how online advertising is a bad thing. But click OK so that we can give you some good on online advertising. 
We know it's a problem. But we also like it. We like the convenience of not having to pay for our social medias, and we risk out on the reality that because we're not paying for it, we've become a product. A product to be sold to. Well, first of all, we're sold to the advertisers, and then they sell to us. It's working. And it's devastating for us. These are very destructive trends our culture's giving us, and they're shaping us in some really messed up ways. And it's not just in the selling, though. Even more, it's also in the comparing. It's in these little devices that give us an insight into our neighbors' homes, spouses, possessions, experience, and vehicles, and cause us to line our lives up next to them. It was probably, I mean, we don't know for sure, but probably Theodore Roosevelt who wrote that comparison is a thief of joy. Who here has heard that before? Who here has posted this on their Instagram feed in the last while? Well, this is like, we see this everywhere because we're realizing over and over again it's doing something to us. And why is comparison the thief of joy? It's because it breeds discontentment, it turns others into competition, and in the process dehumanizes others. Where we measure up and we measure down. Think about just the scroll on Instagram, which happens to be the way that many of us start our days. What's that shaping us like, starting our days with phones instead? We see photos of people's times at Disneyland, and then we look out the window and see the sidewalk that needs shoveling and the thermometer that's plunging to an inhumanely cold level. We see the clean and kept living room with the kids quietly reading. <laughs> I know. It's all fake. Because <laughs> we look at our rooms and we see World War III levels of chaos happening and kids fighting. We see their new kitchen. When we look at our drabbled cabinets, we see their promotion at work, and they're younger than us and less experienced than us, but we're still stuck in that position we were five years ago. We read their thoughtful and poetic response to a seemingly insignificant moment, and we wonder why we aren't that deep or insightful. Or we see the way their shirt pulls at their arms, and then we see how ours pulls at our stomachs. <laughs> Maybe we see how they're able to visit their grandchildren daily seemingly whenever they want, when we live hours away. Maybe it's just visiting our feeds and seeing how our hair is getting thinner than it used to be, or how the aging process is caught up with our bodies and they just can't do what they used to. Maybe it's somebody else's ability to go to the mountains whenever they want. Maybe it's even that you aren't at the level of spirituality or apprenticing with Jesus that you want to be. You aren't hearing the voice of God the way others do. Or maybe you're not as impacted by, somebody else, uh, by a worship time as somebody else's. I don't know what it is, but as we scroll through these feeds, we can always find something to be discontent about, can't we? In an article called The Comparison Trap, which I found in Psychology Today, sitting at my counselor's office, Rebecca Weber writes, social media is like the kerosene poured on a flame of social comparison dramatically increasing the information about people we're exposed to and forcing our minds to assess. In the past, we absorbed others' triumphs sporadically. Now such news is at our fingertips constantly, updating us about a greater range of people than we previously tracked, and we invite its sepia-filtered jolts of information to our commutes, our moments waiting in line for coffee, even our beds at 2 a.m. 
It's like kerosene poured on the flames of social comparison, and it's shaping us. Shaping us to be discontent, resentful, competitive, greedy, wasteful, and insincere. And it's also shaping our mental health. Psychologist and author Mitch Prinstein writes in that same article, when we're reliant on others for a sense of self, only feeling good if we get positive feedback or markers of status, we're at risk for depression. Depression and anxiety are at all-time highs these days. Because comparison and discontent are destructive forces in our world, causing us to become less and less content, and in turn, more and more anxious, greedy, and frantic. Our world is designed to become more and more like this. And so honestly, we need to learn how to take a stand. Because it's one thing to know it. I know that going to the gym and eating well is good for me. But it's not my arms that are getting grabbed out by my fabric. Knowing is only half the battle, as G.I. Joe told you before. And so if the problem, did I misquote that? Totally, sorry. <laughs> so if the problem today is that modern life is built on the back of comparison and discontentment, what's the solution? Well, the solution is the cure for comparison and discontent is found in learning the art of contentment. Because let's be clear, contentment's not a natural thing, is it? Right? It doesn't happen haphazardly or unintentionally. We don't fumble our ways into contentment. Instead, it's through this intentional hard work of receiving it as a gift. Because contentment's not found in achieving, but receiving. So to begin with, contentment is not found, with, or found in achieving. Going back to our passage this morning in Philippians 4, 10 to 13, Paul writes, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned. You had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in, every, in, or in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This statement of Paul's that he says, I've learned the secret to being content in any and every situation is very similar to a philosophy of his day. Now, we can tend to think of the Bible as being written in a vacuum, kind of written to us, that Paul's just writing these things, he's thinking, but in the reality, this is a letter, and this letter is written to a certain people in a certain time. It's written in ancient Rome, which of course was built on the foundation of ancient Greece, and the foundation of ancient Greece was philosophy. And one of the main philosophies of ancient Greece was that of Stoicism. And the main, one of the main tenets of Stoicism was a self-sufficiency that results in an indifference to possessions, pleasure, or pain. An indifference to possessions, pleasure, and pain. And it almost sounds here like that's what Paul is saying. That he's learned how to detach himself from possession and pleasure. He's learned how to take on any circumstance because he is self-sufficient. He can handle it. He has learned the secret that he's reached a whole new zen-like level of living where he doesn't have to worry about pain, hunger, possession, whatever, even in prison. It all sounds like that until his final sentence where he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. This is not a self-sufficiency. This is a Christ-sufficiency. 
His strength is found in his connection to, in his dependence on, and his apprentice with, apprenticeship with Jesus. Then Paul, or sorry, in Jesus, Paul has found contentment, not achi- achieving a level of self-sufficiency, but in receiving from Christ. And yet we still try the self-sufficiency route all the time, don't we? We see this in the minimalist movement that's happening a lot today where people are seeking to purge themselves from all possessions, live in the tiniest house they can make, and then they'll find goodness. Then they'll find satisfaction. Or we see the opposite of Fortune 500 executives who have everything they need at their fingertips. And yet what we see on both sides is a lack of satisfaction. It's like Porter Wagoner wrote in his country classic, A Satisfied Mind. How many times have you heard someone say, if I had his money, I could do things my way? But little do they know it's so hard to find one rich man in ten with a satisfied mind. Money can't buy you back your youth when you're old, or a friend when you're lonely, or a love that's grown cold. The wealthiest person is a pauper at time compared to the man with a satisfied mind. Feels like a prophetic statement to our day. When we look for life and satisfaction and things that can never deliver what they promise, we're only going to run up empty. Because the only way, truth, and life is Christ himself. And life and satisfaction can only be found in him and his his ways. If we think it's only in a smaller house that we won't have as much to clean or a bigger house where we can put everything and it won't be as cluttered, we're missing the mark. We think that we only need to make just this much more. You know, if I had $5,000 more a year, I'd be totally fine. But then what happens is we make that much and we realize, oh, we spend even more. Because contentment is never going to be found in money. And this is what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about, which I know you guys are all reading for your devotions this morning, so I don't really need to tell you about it. But Ecclesiastes' theme can be summed up in this. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. The word haval, which is translated meaningless here, can also be translated as a vapor. So the teacher, the, the author of Ecclesiastes, has, has talked about how he's tried to find uh, satisfaction in all sorts of things, in pleasure, possessions, hard work, success, and fame. And what he's discovered is it's all meaningless. It's all vapor. It's like a fog that you go to try and clutch onto and discover there was nothing there. And this is probably, I think, what Jesus had in mind when he said this. Don't store up treasures on earth where thieves can break in and steal or moths can destroy because there's no life in these things. Now, satisfaction and contentment cannot be found in achieving. Life is not found in self-sufficiency. Instead, contentment can only be found in receiving. Like Paul, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. We can find the secret to being content because the secret is Jesus. It is Christ who brings contentment. When we are apprenticing with Jesus, being with him, learning how to be like him, we discover that we can actually live like him because Jesus had this posture of contentment too. We read about him having no place to lay his head and yet he knew the abundance of his father and his father's kingdom. He knew the one who could empower him because we we read in the scriptures only Jesus did everything through the power of the Holy Spirit, not his own. It wasn't his divinity that caused him to do stuff, it was the Holy Spirit. And so he knows this Holy Spirit and the empowerment of this Holy Spirit can do crazy things like make um, fish and loaves materialize in such a way that 5,000 people, actually 5,000 men, there's women and children that you should count on there, can be fed. 
Like, talk about abundance, taking five loaves and two fish, and somehow, miraculously, they keep rematerializing in some weird, mind-blowing way. Jesus knows his Father's kingdoms like that. He knows about abundance. He knows the one who takes care of birds and flowers and knows the one who takes care of us as well. And Jesus found his strength by being with his Father in solitude. We read so often of Jesus disappearing, or at least trying to disappear often, getting away from the crowds to just be with his Father, to find life in his Father, a practice of silence and solitude that Linda taught on early in our series, and if you want to learn more about that, just go back to her message. And it's because of all this that Jesus can say, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus is inviting us to reprioritize our lives, move from storing up treasures for ourselves, from living greedy lives where we find contentedness in our things, and inviting us to live in his way, to invest in the life of the kingdom, to invest in lives uh, in such a way that we become a whole new kind of humanity. While our tendency, of course, is to build our own kingdoms, to store up treasures for ourselves, Jesus invites us to a whole new way of living where we build up God's kingdom by investing in the lives of others, by embracing his ways, a way that sees simplicity and generosity as the way forward. And so what would Jesus say to us today? Just thinking about this for a bit. What if he'd say something like this? Don't look for satisfaction in titles and promotions where a recession can come and destroy. Don't look for satisfaction in experiences where dementia and Alzheimer's can erase. Don't look for satisfaction in a carefully curated social media presence where hackers can come and steal. This one's for me. Don't look, up for, don't look for satisfaction in a great record collection where an old needle can scratch and the sun can warp. Don't look for satisfaction in a clean house where toddlers can come and clutter. Don't look for satisfaction in a new car where icy streets come and wreck. No. No. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and the rest will be given to you. Reorder your priorities and desires. Desire the kingdom, the way God's designed the world to operate. Desire righteousness. Desire right living with God and with each other. And as we do these things, we'll find the other things find their proper place. There's nothing wrong with a great record collection, but when it's your source of life and satisfaction, that's the wrong thing. But when it's the with dinner salad with the main course of life in the kingdom and righteousness, it's okay. I'm not just gospeling myself with that, but maybe. It's also like this much interpreted line from the Psalms. Take delight in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. This is not about some sort of transaction or karma. It's not about doing enough things for God that then God owes you. Like if you pray and feed the poor and do all these things enough, then you'll get the new car and you'll get the new house and your kids will all of a sudden listen better. Right? That's not what this is about. But we hear it that way often, don't we? That if you do enough for God, you'll, he'll, he'll owe you. But that's not the way of the kingdom. What? Instead, it's about the transformative work of God in your life. That as you delight yourself in the Lord, as you practice the way of Jesus, the more you Sabbath, the more you rest, the more you worship, the more you reorder your life around the ways of God, the more you take in Scripture, what you discover is your desires change. 
The more you delight in God, you discover that he's giving your heart new desires. They're reordered around the ways of God and his kingdom. You actually desire new things. You desire mercy and justice. You desire kindness and humility, and you desire to bless others. But just as our practice of discontentment and comparison shape us, so do the practices of the way of the kingdom. And so how do we practice contentment? Well, contentment, friends, is a gift that we receive, that we learn from Jesus. So how do we do this? Well, once again, it's by nothing new. Instead, it's going back to those well-trodden roads of spiritual disciplines. So I've got five things you can try, not because I want to add five things to your life. I know that you're already running on slow margins, and it's not about, okay, here, take on these five new things and practice these every day, and then you'll be okay. Instead, it's about knowing that we're all wired in very different ways. And maybe one of these things will work for you, maybe they won't. But to begin with, the first is gratitude. Just a little earlier in Philippians 4, Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Paul says we experience the peace of God instead of the anxiety of discontentment through thanksgiving. And there's a number of studies in the psychological world on the power of gratitude to help out with anxiety. And it's an ancient practice. Practicing being thankful. Go figure. So there's plenty of ways you can do this. You can Google a variety. Or you could just start with making a list of things you're grateful for. And then when discontentment comes your way, you can prayerfully reflect on them. The second thing is to intentionally set your mind on the good. Paul continues in Philippians 4, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the peace of God will be with you. It's about retraining your brain. Our brains will often go to the bad, go to the things we don't have, go to what we feel we're lacking. And Paul's inviting us to retrain our brain and to focus on the good. You know, you really don't like that creaky floorboard in your kitchen? What's the good stuff in your kitchen? How is this allowing you to host and to um, bless your children through cooking or whatever? It's about retraining your mind. The third thing is digital fasting. Because these devices in our hand can be so devastating to our contentment, the question is, when do you turn them off? When are they out of your reach? When do you not go on social media? I've done this. This is helpful. I don't do it enough. But uh, I took this Advent season um, back in December, and I took Safari off my phone. And honestly, there's not much more freeing for somebody who likes knowledge like I do to not be able to answer a question by asking Siri. Where Siri just says, I can't do that. You know, like, and I don't know what it would be for you. Maybe it's, you know, we've got Lent approaching right away here. Maybe it's no social media for a season. Maybe it's just, you know, for two hours every night you don't look at your phone. But it's finding ways to fast digitally. The fourth is engaging in practices of witness, which I know I made up, but practices of witness with Jesus, like silence and solitude. And I'd also add Sabbath. When we partake in these practices, we build up dependence on God and not ourselves. 
And so if you're wondering how to do these things more, Linda preached on silence and solitude, and Graham last week preached on Sabbath. And both are just excellent practices to engage in. Difficult, but excellent. And the fifth is this. Reflect on who God says you are, because it's so easy to get discontent with who you are. And so, again, Google can be helpful, and maybe it could tell you positive things about you, but quickly just search on Google um, who I am in Christ. And you'll come up with a list by a guy named Neil Anderson. And then he just takes promises of Scripture about who God says you are and just reflect on those. Like, you are the apple of God's eye. You are the one that he delights in. You're the one he sings songs over. Like, and reflect on those things. And gospel yourself with those things. Remind yourself about those things because when discontentment brews, when you lose track, when you lose the plot, returning to those things is so good. Okay, so... We're going to try a practice, and I'm going to do something that I barely ever tell you to do. Take out your phone, guilt-free. I'm going to entrust that you're not playing Angry Birds, because I don't think anybody does anymore. <laughs> you do, Kaylee, good work. Uh, so what I want you to do is open up the Notes app, and if you don't have your phone here, uh, because you're afraid I was going to talk about it or something, uh, you can take out your notebook. But I want you to make a list. So one, two, three, four, all the way to 20. And what I want you to do is I want you to start thinking about things that you can be grateful for. And just write down 20 things right now. If you're looking for things, you're breathing right now, that's a great place to start. It's really cold outside, but it's not in here. Uh, if you've got lots of kids like me, you got four just taken away right away. It's really good. But think of 20 things you can be grateful for. So start writing, and then what's going to happen? And if you don't have anything, you can make a mental list, Brenda. I got it. And then uh, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, revisit that song we sang earlier, Bless the Lord, O oh My Soul. And we're going to take time to thank God for the 20 things out of the 10,000 you can thank Him for. And so take some time to make your list right now.
intercessors in the prayer corner who'd love to pray with you. Um, if you've got anything you're wanting prayer for, anything you're looking for, uh, just the Lord's heart and they'd love to be with you. Um, and uh, you've got these chairs that you're sitting on and they would love for you to take them to the, the places in the corner to stack them. Make sure you stack them in the same way they were stacked before. It's really helpful. And uh, as you go, may you go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you, uh, and this is out of Colossians, just as you receive Christ as your Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and established in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And would you go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, my friends. Thank you for tuning into our podcast today. To discover more about Stony Plain Alliance Church and its ministries, visit our website at spaconline.com. Grace and peace.